Start Me Up podcast, part of the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network in association with MSW Media. I'm your host, Kimberly Johnson in D.C. Today, my returning guest is Rachel Bittekoffer. Her upcoming book, Hit Em Where It Hurts, How to Save Democracy by Beating Republicans at Their Own Game, comes out in February 2024. You can pre-order it now on Amazon. We're going to talk about that and current headlines, but before we get into it. The Start Me Up podcast is independent, listener-funded, and woman-run. Visit patreon.com slash startmeup to see the variety of tiers offered, including the option to get a bonus What's Up episode every Tuesday. It's kind of like my online journal where I get a little more personal and I talk about whatever's on my mind. There's also an ad-free tier with a much shorter intro. Just visit patreon.com slash startmeup. Now please enjoy my conversation with Rachel Bittekoffer. Welcome back to the show, Rachel. I am so excited to be back. Thank you so much for having me. It's always exciting to have you on, and I'm I'm extra excited because you have a new book coming out. It's called Hit 'Em Where It Hurts: How to Save Democracy by Beating Republicans at Their Own Game. So it comes out next February, and you can pre-order it now on Amazon. But I want you to talk about it. Tell us all about your inspiration and what you want us to know about it. Yeah, I'm so excited. <laughs> this book is is you know it, it is. <laughs> It's my entire brain laid out for everybody else to have. Right? Awesome. <laughs> so what it does is it <laughs> first what it does is it it, it teaches you guys the what I know as a, pol- a trained political scientist that has a doctorate, did a dissertation in American politics, especially voting behavior and um, that topic area. So what it does is it explains to, to everyone else what do political scientists know about mass voters and the electorate. And once you understand what political scientists know, you understand why it is the democratic strategy is so bad, <laughs> because our strategy is based on a really flawed assumption that I attack directly in the book, and that is that the American people are smart, okay? The American people are plenty smart on the IQ scale, but when it comes to civics, mm-hmm. we are not a smart people. Yeah. In fact, we're almost civically illiterate. Right? Yeah. And... Um, it really matters because if you think about what you hear Democrats say, some of the things Democrats say, well, everybody knows about this or that. And actually mm. nobody knows about this or <laughs> right. that. Right? <laughs> like even people that are – like I just had lunch yesterday with a friend of mine. He's pl- pretty politically engaged, and they had never heard of the fake electors plot. Wow. I've never heard of the fake electors plot. Oh my god! So you know wow. that's the normal human being that we're dealing with, and if we can't accept that and understand it, right. devise a strategy that meets it where it is, we're in real trouble. And that's why our wonky appeals um, don't cut it against Republican propaganda. The second half of the book goes into exactly how to do it. Right? So it lays out. How do you um, hit them where it hurts? How do you take the Republican electioneering propaganda communication system once you understand its scope and depth and uh, and then, you know, create something similar for us so that we can go toe to toe against these guys. And that's what the book does. I'm really wow. excited about it. Yes. And I can't wait to read it. I want to ask you because I had interviewed Jamie Harrison last year. I think it was last year. And, you know, and he said something about Democrats, Democratic voters they are most inspired by hope. And then I argued, of course, I agree with that, but I think people in general are motivated by fear. And, you know, we've talked about this before and you've talked about it. And I said, so, you know, I wanted to see the Democrats saying, all right, 
offering up the scary thing that Republicans are doing or taking away, but then backing it up with the solution. And I'm so I'm just curious what you think about the idea of Democratic voters needing to feel hopeful as opposed to utilizing some of those same fear tactics that the Republicans use. I mean, not the same fear tactics, but the fact that it is a fear tactic. Like, we could use the fear tactic with abortion or something like that and scare people into saying, all right, if you vote for Republicans, it's going to be a ban across the United States, stuff like that. So, like, how do you feel about using fear to motivate people to the polls? Yeah, so here's here's when I was talking about misconceptions about the electorate, I think this is a very important one. And, I, and to be fair to Chair Harrison, I think he does understand this. Uh, yeah. you know, you're in a particular position in the head of the DNC, and, right. and uh, you know, <clears throat> but I think he does understand uh, that you need more than a hopeful message to right. win in today's <laughs> does, political yeah. system. So I just wanted to say that up front. But in in any case. Uh, as I was talking about in the beginning of the book, um, where I lay out, you know, and break some some myths about the electorate. Mm-hmm. One of them is is that if you don't, if if people don't give a shit about policy, we care about policy. Mm-hmm. All the activists that we work with care about mm-hmm. policy. If people gave a shit about policy, more than fifty percent of people would would vote. Okay, right. so if you're trying to get people with rough turnout. Or you know, um, you know, marginal participation excited. The way to do it isn't by appealing to them on their policy wishes, you know, in a positive, optimistic way. The way to do it is to make them fearful mm-hmm. through loss aversion, through threat, mm-hmm. that if they don't participate and vote and vote for you, they will suffer. Right. Right. And yeah, you can you can roll optimism into that. There, mm-hmm. You know, probably I mean, a very famous form of ad, right, is the contrast ad. You you're contrasting. But what we should be contrasting at all times isn't policy differences between Republicans and, dif- and and Democrats, not at the stage. What we should be doing is contrasting the Republican Party is coming for your health, wealth, freedom, and safety, yeah. right? So yeah. I think I call it the, the health, wealth, freedom, and safety narrative. And you can work in whatever policy-specific message you want to do into that mm-hmm. because they're coming for Social Security. Mm-hmm. They're coming for Medicare. We're 50 years on from trickle-down and Reaganomics. They've mm-hmm. ruined and decimated the American middle class, mm-hmm. right? So it's 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 very, very easy to con- include a, a positive optimistic outlook while you are still activating a fear threat loss aversion response in the target audience yeah i mean i absolutely think that that is what needs to be done it's what motivates me you know remind tell me when when things are good tell me about your hopeful message and it's like but then you know tell me that i'm not going to have a right if i don't show up to the polls then I'm I'm much more vo- motivated to go to the polls, and so I mean, and I'm specifically speaking about my younger self when I really wasn't paying attention to politics. But you know, I mean, I if something would have come up, if I would have felt when I was in my early twenties that abortion might you know go away, I absolutely would have shown up. <laughs> so exactly, yeah. and and because exactly. like you know Gen Z, I mean. 
Gen Z that you see on Twitter engaging in politics, those people, you guys should understand, those mother, they're, they're unicorns. Okay? Mm. <laughs> like, we, you know, if we could get, if Gen Z paid attention to politics the way that senior citizens did, we wouldn't even be in this. Exactly. Now. So what do we have to do to get these people to care? We have to let them know that they're, they're in the crosshairs personally, their own self, their own friends yes. and families. Liberals, we are very liberal people, so we do actually care for things for others just for others that don't even benefit ourselves Mm -hmm. okay but that is not like necessarily a common (laughs) human attribute right (laughs) even amongst even amongst people who vote democrats Mm -hmm. like we're still Mm self-interested creatures human beings like we may be less self-interested than the republicans are when you look at psychological traits okay But at the end of the day, all humans are mm-hmm. self-interested. And therefore, if you're making an appeal to people about helping others, you're not. it's not going to be as effective <laughs> as making appeal to people about helping themselves yeah. and their own in-group, okay? Yeah. So, um, you know, we're talking about this in the context of mobilizing, you know, Democrats and people will vote to de- for Democrats, which I, you know, put a lot of attention on independent leaners, lean mm-hmm. Democrat, because they're the ones whose turnout is most is most contingent on being activated mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. Uh, but it also it also relates in the same context same message same strategy to to winning over the swing bucket because at the end of the day what republicans are telling swing voters is one message be afraid of the democrats mm-hmm. it's a bad brand it's bad for you don't vote for it mm-hmm. we're not doing that what we're trying to do is market candidates on biography mm-hmm. on you know whatever right and and i'm not saying that candidates can't do that stuff I and mean, that's a staple of of candidate campaigns but there has to be some heavily fortified spending wise mm-hmm. presence that is just napalming the republican brand in, in in these swing races and pushing swing voters away from the other side as the republicans do to us they aren't trying to sell you know, they didn't sell J.D. Vance to Ohio. Right. What they did was they made voters afraid of Tim Ryan, right? right. Um, the Tim Ryan campaign ran the opposite strategy. They ran the traditional Democratic strategy, the strategy this book is dedicated to killing off. And what he did was the opposite, right? He made the race about Tim Ryan mm-hmm. and not about J.D. Vance. Right. And we can see what the results of that ended up being. Wow. Oh, my God. Um I hope we can learn all of this before election day in 2024. <laughs> well, it does come out in February. And I'm going to be I know. working. We do have some time. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, okay, now I want to ask you, aside from voting, what would you say at least is one of the most important things that voters can do to save democracy, especially specifically in, you know, uh, going up, heading up to 2024? Sure, I talk about this in the book as well. Everybody that's listening to this podcast right now is an influencer, okay? You may not be Kim Kardashian (laughs) or even me, okay? But you have an influence, a sphere of influence, and you could be using it much more effectively if you kind of uh, adopt some of these principles and tactics from the book, especially those Thanksgiving arguments that you have with your crazy uncle, yeah. right? <laughs> I'm guessing they go a certain way. The uncle says something crazy. You try to explain why it's not crazy, and you never, and you always feel like you lose the fight, mm-hmm. right? You know, it, it, we have to, we have to stop. We, we know the strategy of wonky, you know, fact checking. It isn't effective. Because nobody is like us. Nobody pays attention. You know, even a politically engaged regular voter doesn't know about the fake electoral mm-hmm. count 
um, scandal, guys. Right. Yeah. So like we need we need to really really bore down on on the big top lines of, of what's happening. They're coming for democracy. Mm-hmm. They're coming for your retirement. Right. They want you to work till you die. Right. They're going to leave you to die in the streets because they don't they don't think you should have health care. Right. Those that's the kind of aggressive frontal posture that we need to adapt if we're going to survive, especially the Senate map in 2024. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, so I mentioned Gen Z and I just want to know what you think. I mean, obviously they're the ones we're seeing a huge participation, huge engagement, just showing up, they're voting. Um, obviously they're, they're the ones who grew up with school shootings. They have all this college debt and everything. So how do you see Gen Z playing in 2024? Do you think they're going to be a huge influence? And, and then on top of that, do you think that will, providing we win, um, Democrats win in 2024, do you think that that would make them like lifetime voters? <laughs> oh, yes. Well, so, I mean, remember what I said really at the beginning here. I said, like, if, if only young people, the under 30 sect voted the same rates as the over 60 sect yes, <laughs> wouldn't right. be in this position. And, you know, any any strategist, you know, David Plouffe would tell you, yeah. like, it's hard to get young people to vote. Okay, yeah. so when we see robust performance by young people, which we did see in the 22 cycle, because you have to keep in mind that comparing it to 2018 is no go because in 2018 we were in the opposition. Now we're in power. And that 22 midterm, the fact that youth turnout was on par with 2018 is a very good sign that that age group is unusually enhanced and in paying attention and engaged right now. But when I say that, I want people to understand I'm talking about marginally. Okay? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if we could change marginally by a few more percentage points, it would have profound impacts on wow. elections all across the board uh, from the House level up. Oh, <laughs> it's like it sounds so good. Um, you, uh, you also I'm going to switch over to this. You posted a oh god it was so upsetting it was a video and it was of course it was a Gen Zer who was doing the interview but it was a he was interviewing a MAGA guy and he was presenting him with all the reasons why he was happy with Biden and he named you know the Inflation Reduction Act and all this stuff and he really knew what he was talking about so he's talking to the MAGA man and the MAGA man just looks at him and at the basically at the end he's like well I don't think Joe Biden is a legit a legitimate president and I think he's going to be killed for treason. So that was his big, you know, <laughs> reply to all the um, success that Biden has ex- accomplished. And I I just wanted to know, I mean, you mentioned, you know, dropping the napalm bomb of, I don't know what you would call it, a truth bomb or whatever, democratic messaging bomb. How do we combat this cultist ideology? And then how do we how do we drop that big bomb? Is it is it lots of money? Um, yes. Okay. Money, money, money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, just to warn progressives when you read this book, right, I lay out not only the stuff that uh, political science has to say about the you know mass voter behavior mm-hmm. and voter psychology and interest, but I also talk about the Republican system and really take you through how it developed and, you know, the media and um, ecosystem, the funding and the think tank infrastructure to kind of show people, you know, h- how over time – this they've built this incredible well-financed infrastructure for example we have like 500 youth turnout operations like grassroots groups devoted to gen z turnout. <laughs> yeah they get one it's called turning point usa 
and it has $86 million right. last year. <laughs> I went down and debated Charlie Kirk just so I could see what the turning point asset portfolio looked like. And I knew I'd never be able to see that otherwise. And it, they had six, I sh I'm not kidding, six buildings in Tempe, Arizona, some of the most expensive re um, real estate in Arizona, six different multi-story buildings is what that turning point wow. is made up of. So, you know, we have a, we have a, we gum and elbow grease is great. And it makes us feel great and say, it's all coming from the bottom up. Our mm -hmm. grassroots is actually grass. It's not astroturf. <laughs> we need money. Mm -hmm. We need as much money as we can possibly get to go up against this machine because it is well-resourced and well-institutionalized and we are just getting started. So it is kind of a tough pill to right. swallow when, when you hear somebody <laughs> saying, hey, actually, we need all the money we can get. We mm -hmm. need more billionaires to get onto the side of democracy and pro-democracy. But the fact is that we are severely outmatched. And at the end of the day, you can have a great message. You could have a, you know this napalm bomb. If I don't have money to deploy it and deploy it aggressively, mm -hmm. then it might as well never exist. So right. yes, at the end of the day, money, money, Money. Okay. Well, on that note, we will take a quick break and be back after this message. Hey, this is Kimberly, the host of the show you're listening to right now. In case you didn't know, on Tuesdays, I do a show called What's Up. It's for patrons only. And I talk about whatever's on my mind. Sometimes I talk about my feelings. Sometimes I talk about politics. Sometimes I talk about sex. But I always keep it personal. I also have some other perks that you might want to check out at patreon.com slash startmeup. Join me, 48 Hours correspondent Erin Moriarty, on my podcast, My Life of Crime, as I take on true crime investigations like no other. This season, I'm looking into the labyrinth of crime and secrets within families. I'm cutting straight to the evidence and talking to the people directly involved, including investigators and the families of victims. Listen to My Life of Crime with Erin Moriarty wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so now I'm going to switch over into, I've, I always ask people on my show, you know, what they're feeling about the tra trajectory of everything right now today. And I think most people are feeling pretty optimistic, even though we're dealing with, oh my God, so much bullshit. It's unbelievable what's coming down the pike. But we are, you know, we're seeing wins. We are experiencing losses, but we're seeing wins. And I think, I think the general feeling from what I'm getting right now is people are saying, okay, look, you know, they got rid of abortion or they, you know, they got rid of Roe. And so now they're doubling down on it and it's hurting them. And they're, they're doubling down on all the stuff that they should be shying away from and it's hurting them. And so that seems to be the opinion of whether it's a pundit who I've had on or a regular voter. And I'm just wondering what you think, like right now, I know you can't predict what is going to happen in the election, but you know, just providing everything there's, you know, providing there's no hardcore cheating or anything like that. What do you think is the trajectory? I mean, you know, the day that the Roe memo, you know, the Roe reversal memo leaked that it was coming, I started talking about, wow, this is going to be, this is 
this is cataclysmic in mm-hmm. the body politic. Mm-hmm. It's going to change everything, yeah. right? And I started to advise candidates in 22, run hard on row reversal, mm-hmm. the loss of freedom, right? Um, and uh, the reason I knew that is because I understand behavior, voting behavior. I'm a political scientist. <laughs> and, you know, study this stuff extensively. And I anticipated what what happens with the row reversal is the morality around the abortion issue flips okay mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it right now and it has since row favored these imaginary children who if only but for selfish women were going to be born into these magical lives of greatness right <laughs> like, it's all hypothetical so you know and, and the abortion movement was very shrewd like all republican things very shrewd in, in taking language like pro-life, which sets the opposition up immediately for to be pro-death, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 effectively taking over and, and, and hammering that message for years, right? Um, but at the end of the day, that that doesn't help them anymore. That's why they're trying to get rid of pro-life, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're like, oh shit, now this doesn't work <laughs> for us, right? Because so, the morality switch that very day, yeah. it became about real women suffering real shit mm-hmm. not being able to get a, an abortion right right and so you know to, to in short yes i feel optimistic i think that the row reversal as horrible as it is yeah. actually came at a time of divine intervention like wow. if i needed divine intervention last year for two things i needed inflation not to go crazy crazy yeah. and i needed you know, something else to make Democrats realize everything in the world is on the line and boom, Roe happens, right? So it's not, I'm not celebrating the reversal of Roe at all, but I'm saying that it may ironically end up being the thing that saves us from fascism. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, it's the whole, you know, one door closes and a window opens situation. And I'm totally there with you. I mean, I felt exactly the same way. I can't say that I was happy about it. But there, but as soon as I found out, you know, we, we knew it was going to happen. And then it did happen. And I thought, OK. And it gave me hope for the election. It it was devastating, obviously, on one hand. But then on the other, it was like they're shooting themselves in the foot. And, you know, you, you take especially when you have all this all these young people who are pissed off about the climate they're pissed off about their college debt they're uh, you know they're afraid in school they've watched their friends die and now yep. on top of it they don't have bodily autonomy and so i i'm with you as usual that i'm pretty optimistic but of course i'm you know there's so much because in uh, you know i there's that idea of i think a lot of us are taking a look at Trump and saying, okay, he's our big problem. And if only Trump were gone, you know, if Trump were gone, Trumpism (laughs) goes on and we're going to have to continue to fight this. And people like you are so vital for this because you get it. You understand. And I'm not just kissing your ass. I really mean this. It's like you get how we have to be. And I wish, I wish more people understood this, but I I do want to kind of go back and remind everybody what you said at the start is that we are all, influencers and it doesn't matter how many followers we have but we have control of this argument and we also have control you know biden is doing a pretty decent job the white house is doing a decent job of telling everybody what they've accomplished and you know i mean unfortunately the way that we are on social media i think we get angry we like to get angry we we say we don't but we do and you know we we love to yell at uh what's his i was going to call him todd cruz <laughs> whatever Chuck ball is ted mean? cruz <laughs> but um <laughs> but it's like you know i will see i mean i have been seeing people do share 
the Biden stuff, but it's like people are going to jump on hating on Ted Cruz much faster yes. than promoting, you know, the good stuff that's coming out of the Democratic Party. And I just hope yeah. that more people. And that's liberals, Kim, that you're that talking is. about, right? It's so, like, you know, I, I really push hard. There's a lot, a lot of consultant, you know, type of research like, oh, liberals yeah. are different, though. They need hope and optimism. And this I'm like, bullshit, they bullshit. are human beings. Yes. Dude. And you can see it if you're just talking about like when, when on social, what goes viral, mm-hmm. something that's controversial yeah. or, you know, emotion, not credit claiming. Exactly. Yeah. It's emotionally yeah. driven and the policy stuff isn't as important because people think, well, I already know that, so I don't have to share it. But it's like, please just share it anyway. It, yeah. You know, p- please take the time to go over to the Democrats or Jamie Harrison or Joe Biden and and post their accomplishments, whether you want to quote, tweet, or any of it, because it is so key. I mean, I know Bob was upset last week because he was listing, he had done a thread, and it was just all of, you know, the the Biden Democratic accomplishments, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't getting a lot of a lot of play. I helped him along with that. I put it in some groups and I put it up on some other big, you know, uh, Twitter pages and everything. And, and it, it did start to pick up. But I think it still goes to the fact that we are motivated by fear and anger more than anything else. And so it's, you know, I, I just ask Democratic voters specifically, try to be aware of that and make the effort. Don't only go there to, you know, get your dig in at Todd Cruz or whatever stupid Todd name. Cruz. I want to call him Todd Cruz from now on. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I want to ask you also, and now I, I know you're not a psychic, so I just have to say that, but um, this is my concern and my worry. You know, it's like when, when Donald Trump was president, a lot of people were saying, all right, when, when he loses we're going to have to do all this stuff to shore up our system and tighten everything up. And some of that has been accomplished and some of it hasn't. I mean, DeJoy is still in charge. So there are things that haven't been done yet. So there's the Voting Rights Act. And then, um, you know, I'm, I, I hope that if Democrats can get a majority in the Senate and the House and Biden stays president, that we can pass the voting rights. I do, I do feel confident that that will happen. But the thing that kind of worries me, and this is what I want to ask you about, is we would have the power to impeach, you know, corrupt SCOTUS justices. Do you think that the Democrats would do that? To to impeach, you know, Clarence Thomas for his ethical stuff? Yeah. I don't think it would be, I mean, honestly, I don't think it would be the top priority. Let's say that you're right, Kimberly. We beat every odd, and I feel very confident about the presidential race. I think the White House and the Biden teams Mm -hmm. understand and are meeting the moment in messaging. If I had the rest of the system going like that, I wouldn't, I would sleep so much better, right? It's the congressional (laughs) races that I worry about. And the House is really well positioned for us to retake a majority regardless. Mm-hmm. of strategy necessarily but the senate's going to hinge entirely on it and we right. are really facing an uphill battle we're probably going to lose mansion seat we're probably going to lose the arizona senate seat and right there that pops us down to 48 guys mm-hmm. so we got to make up some ground we got to hold the montana seat i don't think it can be done unless we run the michigan arizona strategies that we ran in 2022 everywhere across every competitive house and senate race Hmm. in the country so you know in that regard i feel like 
you know, we we have a, a really long road to hoe. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if we could get to the point where we ended up with 52 senators, because we would need Manchin and Senate to be yeah. 49 and 50, right? So 51 and 52, then I think there, I think it is absolutely correct to assume that there would be some significant things like democracy protection things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that I would want that as much as Thomas bothers me, guys, at the end of the day, if I had to choose between getting a voting rights act that eliminates partisan gerrymandering and solidifies yeah. federal rules across all 50 states for election access, I would take that first before anything yes. else. So would I. Absolutely. Okay, here's the last, uh, I'm going to say, questions that I'm going to ask. So what what would you say concerns you the most, and then what are you most hopeful about? Definitely the Senate map. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the book's going to go very you know hard on that, because we, we could have had more Senate seats in 2022, and you know we ran the wrong strategy, the old strategy in in Ohio, North Carolina, Florida. So for me, like that's my top focus is how do we get these competitive Senate races to be humming a brand assault against the Republican opponents, and making sure that you know voters are motivated to show up because they're afraid, and motivated to cast ballots for Democrats because they don't like the Republican brand. Hmm. Wow. Um, wait, I'm just going to ask you one more question. Um, are you paying attention to polls? And if you, if you are, whose polls? I really, so uh, I should probably do a whole, you know, podcast on this. Because <laughs> right? it's, you know, comes up a lot, right? I understand, you know, why people are focused on the polls. Uh, I would urge people to go look at polling during Obama in 2012. <laughs> You'll feel a lot better. Mm-hmm. Okay? He ended up winning. There's almost no signal in that data that's different than what we're seeing now about the Biden thing. Yes, Biden is old, but their candidate is a dictator. So I'm right. sure we can survive that. And, uh, you know, just just because the David Ignatius um, article was buzzing around so much yesterday, I, I will add, when you run your incumbent president, you have a massive structural advantage over the opposition. Mm-hmm. The worst thing that we could yeah. possibly do is is strike that out because it would require it's not like i know people in their minds they see biden step aside and then their preferred mm-hmm. guy fall in right so it's, <laughs> you know pete Buttigieg will be the guy or go right. or newsom or gretchen right. whitmer right it's not going to work like that because all three of those guys are great candidates and they're all going to want to meet the moment they're going to mm-hmm. compete against each other it would cost millions of dollars there'll be mud flying There'll be people who are are disaffected because their horse ends up losing. The primaries at the presidential level are incredibly costly Mm -hmm. to the party. So being the in-party starts you halfway up the mountain, saves you all the money and angst. And, uh, you know, and Joe Biden, I think, is is proven, already proven, especially this, this last year or so in the comms, that they're, that team is ready to meet the moment. If mm-hmm. we had that same messaging strategy deploying in these Senate races, we'd be in far better shape. Wow. All right. Well, your book, Hit Them Where It Hurts, How to Save Democracy by Beating Republicans at Their Own Game, is currently, you can get, pre-order it. It's available for pre-order. So it comes out in February, but go to Amazon and you can pre-order it. And then before I let you go, Tell everybody where to find you and whatever else you want to do. <laughs> <laughs> I hold court every day on Twitter. 
um, the only large mass uh, use communication tool that's that's out there. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I, I th- you should follow me at at Rachel Dedekoffer there. I have a, a Substack podcast and blog. It does both um, intermittently, and you can subscribe to that at the at the cycle at subst on Substack. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's that's how you can reach me. Very cool. Well, I'm author Kimberly on Twitter, and then my pinned tweet has all the other socials I'm on, which I'm not going to list. But Rachel, it's always fascinating talking to you, and thank you for what you're doing. Because thank you for being on the show, but specifically thank you for what you do. I, I, I love your message. I love talking to you, and I wish all the Democratic leaders would listen to you. <laughs> well, thank you so much for helping me spread the word about this book, because the book would only help people if they read it. So yes. First, they got to know it exists. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much, and you have a good one. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.